In John chapter 20, the risen Lord surprisingly appears to his weary and defeated followers. The disciples, they believe in Jesus. And the Lord takes a deep breath. He breathes on them and he tells them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Greek word translated spirit is the word pneuma, from which we get our words pneumonia or pneumatic. Pneuma means wind or breath. When Jesus breathed on his disciples, he drew from deep inside. He gave them something of himself. The spirit rose from deep within Jesus, carrying the nature of Jesus to continue the work of Jesus. In that moment, the Holy Spirit came as a gentle puff of breath to indwell his followers. Deep passed unto deep, as the psalmist puts it. Eternal life, the life of Jesus, was imparted from the Lord to his disciples. He breathed on them. But what was a gentle puff of breath following the resurrection became a windstorm seven weeks later at the Feast of Pentecost. Perhaps in the same upper room, the disciples gathered again, and once more they received the Holy Spirit, but this time with a greater intensity. It was a new manifestation. Listen again to how Luke describes the disciples' monumental experience. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You see, the breath of Jesus had intensified into a windstorm. And this was not the last spiritual windstorm in the book of Acts. They reoccurred on a frequent basis. They can even happen today. In fact, I'm praying that the wind will begin to blow in this room even as I speak. You know, physical windstorms are powerful forces of nature. They come in various forms. Dust storms and sandstorms and thunderstorms and blizzards and hurricanes and tornadoes. The wind swirls in and blows hard. It drives the dust or the sand or the rain or the snow or the hail. It picks up whatever object it captures and it unleashes it like a torpedo. Tornadoes can pack winds as strong as 250 miles per hour and can cut a swath a mile wide, even 50 miles long. Hurricanes are massive windstorms. They can swell to 300 miles in diameter and impact an entire coastline. My wife grew up in South Florida, and she tells stories of her father preparing for a hurricane. He would board up the windows of the house, and then he would climb up into the palm trees to pick the coconuts, lest they become storm-propelled cannonballs. In both a tornado and in a hurricane, it's not just the wind that causes damage, but the debris it catapults. And this is what happens in a spiritual windstorm. The power, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit swirls into a church and sweeps that community of believers off their knees. It propels the church to action. The Holy Spirit is now the driving force behind their witness and their service and their love for each other. A church that was just taking up space suddenly becomes an influence on its community. As in a physical windstorm, a gust of the supernatural stirs up the debris. The Holy Spirit captures whatever is in his path 
and launches it with heavenly propulsion. And if the wind is the Holy Spirit, then we, you and I, are the debris. I hope you're not offended by that analogy. But spiritually speaking, there's no better symbolism. You remember Psalm 103, verse 14. It says of God, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. On our own, we are as useful to God as the dust off the top shelf. We're nothing but lint until God's Spirit grips us in his influence. When caught up in the wind of the Holy Spirit, worthless debris gets turned into spiritual missiles. See, a church has no lasting influence on its community until it is stirred up and launched out by God's Spirit. I heard of a news report from Cheyenne, Wyoming. A large twister had blown through the area, amazingly missing the downtown. It did, though, strike a church on the outskirts. Well, the next day, the local newspaper read, thankfully, the cyclone that destroyed Cheyenne Community Church did no real damage to our town. How tragic. Such a statement should never be said of a church, that if it were gone, nothing would be lost. Yet this is the case with many churches today. If we're going to make a difference in our community, we need fresh breezes and strong gusts of the Holy Spirit. And when this happens, we call it revival. This is what I want to speak about this morning, spiritual windstorms. I want to discuss the subject of revival. You know, the Baptist churches that I grew up in always had an annual revival. The revival usually lasted several nights in a row. The best ones were often held in a tent. They'd bring in a guest preacher, add a soloist or a musical group, maybe somebody who could relate to the youth. There might even be a prize for the person who could bring the most people. The whole idea was to generate some excitement in the local church. But understand, this is not what I mean when I use the word revival. A biblical revival is more than a block of meetings on the church calendar. It's a spiritual windstorm. It's a movement of God's Spirit in the hearts of God's people. Throughout history, the Holy Spirit has graciously visited humanity with spiritual awakenings or revivals. These movements have shaped the church and saved the lost and sent society in a more godly trajectory. Scottish preacher William Nicole once wrote, It is by revivals that the church of God makes its most visible advance. When all things seem calm, when no breath stirs the air, when the sea is like lead and the sky is low and gray, when all worship seems to have ended but the worship of vanity, it is then that the Spirit of God is poured upon the church. Suddenly, the Christianity of the apostles and martyrs, not that of the philosophers and liberals, rises from the catacombs of oblivion and appears young and fresh in the midst of the obsolete things of yesterday. And it is for this that I long for real Christianity to rise and for God's kingdom to advance. This is what happened in the 12th century AD when Peter Waldo and his Waldensians 
These believers renounced the materialism they saw in the church, and they believed that everyone should have a Bible in their own language. This was a prelude to the future awakening that would occur just a few centuries later. The Protestant Reformation lasted for over 100 years and left behind the five solas of orthodoxy by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, by scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. We all can be thankful for the Protestant Reformation. We could also point to the 18th century's first and second great awakenings as tremendous times of revival. The first great awakening led to the abolition of slavery in England and changes to child labor laws. The second great awakening saw American churches packed to the gills. In the South, both slave owners and slaves gathered in open fields to worship God because the churches weren't large enough to accommodate the crowds. It was the beginning of the camp meeting, a tradition of Southern evangelicalism. In 1904, a Welch coal miner named Evan Roberts had been praying fervently for revival. He was just 25 years old. He was a tall, skinny fellow, an unlikely flashpoint for anything of colossal proportions. He had been studying for the ministry when he asked his pastor if he could hold some meetings, some evening meetings at his church. Well, at first, the attendance was sparse. But before long, shops started closing so employees could get to the church and reserve a seat for the meetings. Soon the roadways to the church were clogged with out-of-town seekers coming to see what was happening. Often the meetings lasted until 4.30 in the morning. Sin was confessed. Sinners were converted. Homes and families were restored. For the next couple of years, all across Wales, bars closed Jails emptied, churches were filled. My, even soccer matches were canceled to avoid conflicts with the revival. Welch miners were so transformed by the Holy Spirit, their mules had to be retrained to work without the prodding of curse words. During the Welsh revival of 1904, two kids were one day heard offering their explanations for what was going on in their community. One child said to the other, do you know what is happening in our town? The other child replied, no, I don't, except that Sunday comes every day now. The first child added, why, Jesus has come to live in our town. And here are two great definitions for revival. It's when Jesus comes to reside and rule over a community, and it's when every day feels like a day of worship. Of course, our family, Calvary Chapel, was born in a revival. In the 1960s, we saw a generation disillusioned by materialism, by the war in Vietnam, by racial inequalities. The youth rejected the shallowness of their parents' morality and immersed themselves in drugs and free sex. But that's when God sent a Jesus movement, which taught the Bible, giving the people the truth that they lacked. And emphasizing the Holy Spirit, providing these young people the heavenly high for which they craved. It began in the heart of Chuck and Kay Smith on the beaches of Southern California, and it swept the nation. When it comes to revival, I like the observation by preacher Alexander Whitey. He writes, there is a divine mystery about revivals. God's sovereignty is in them. 
In other words, when the Spirit of God moves in revival, patterns and predictability fly out the window. This is not something that we can conjure up. This is when God takes the helm. Unexpected things happen. Baptist preacher Vance Havner once said, when I was a boy, preachers talked about holding a revival. But what we really need is somebody who will turn a revival loose. Revival is more than just holding a meeting. It occurs when God turns his spirit loose in the church and then turns the church loose on a needy world. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. A spiritual windstorm sent from God's throne caused the church in Jerusalem to soar and to roar. Luke paints the picture here in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. When you do a close inspection of verse 2, you find some interesting insights regarding spiritual revivals. Let me share a few with you. First, the Greek word translated suddenly, it means unawares or unexpectedly. When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, it happened spontaneously. You know, in nature, when serious winds begin to stir, the storms get tracked by meteorologists. As conditions become conducive for a tornado, a watch is issued. When a tornado is spotted, they upgrade the watch to a warning But when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, there was no watch. There was no warning. They were just waiting, as Jesus had told them to do. Just resting in what God had promised. Waiting implies no anxiety, no uncertainty. Just the expectation, just the trust that what the Father promised he would do. Well, when the Spirit came upon the disciples, a sound was heard. The word translated sound is the word echoes, from which we get our word echo. Here's its definition. A sound of uncertain affinity, a loud or confused noise, a roar. I've never been in high winds that would constitute a tornado or a hurricane. Yet here's an account I read from someone who has. The wind blew so hard, the walls of the house shook. We looked outside through a window and surprisingly, everything was flying away. We couldn't even open the door because it would have been impossible to close it afterward. One unforgettable thing is the whistle of the wind, like a train approaching near your house. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost when God's spirit came upon the church. It was like a windstorm. They they heard the roar of a ferocious wind. One author paraphrases Luke's description. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. A wind from heaven rocked their world. Immediately after his resurrection, Jesus drew a puff of air and he breathed gently on his disciples. But here, he blows on them a mighty, rushing, gale force wind. Both experiences were indicative of the encounter the disciples had with the Holy Spirit at that time. In John 20, the disciples saw the risen Lord, and their faith was rewarded with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But here in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit came upon them, it was for empowerment. This time, Jesus blew hard on his disciples. He filled their sails with a wind 
that would cause the gospel ship to sail to its destination despite the storms it would inevitably face. Don't forget the early church was born in a firestorm of persecution. The Greek word translated witness is actually martyr. You know, today a martyr is a person who dies for their faith. This meaning developed when most of the first witnesses paid the ultimate price to stand for Jesus. Yet even in such a discouraging climate, the church prevailed in its mission. It was all because of the Holy Spirit. Notice, too, the word rushing. It means to carry. A strong wind, again, it captures stuff and it carries it through the air. Remember, the impact of a windstorm is produced not just by high-velocity winds, but the winds pick up debris and propel them at tremendous speeds and for far distances. And this is what God wants to do with us. See, we are the debris that he wants to launch and send and use to strike targets with his truth and with his love. Folks get stirred up and sent out in a windstorm. Missionaries get raised up in a revival. God gives out marching orders. In revival times, servants of God who were content to just pack a pew suddenly want to get involved. And notice the wind in Acts chapter 2 was a mighty wind. The Amplified Version correctly renders it the rushing of a violent tempest blast. This is not a mild breeze that leaves you untouched. It's a rustling wind. The Spirit picks up the pieces of our lives, blows them about, and then rearranges them as He pleases. The spiritual windstorm is a strong wind that impacts you and dramatically alters your life. You're different after you've been touched by a mighty wind from God. And like a tornado or a hurricane, you don't experience a mighty wind without incurring some damage. You see, the power of the Holy Spirit cleans you up before he sends you out. Conviction occurs. Repentance takes place. Brokenness sets in. Sins get confessed. Old habits are abandoned. Evil gets renounced. Don't think you can be an effective follower for Jesus and just conduct business as usual. No, to seek a revival is to invite a windstorm of change to blow into our lives and to blow out all our selfishness and pride. This rushing mighty wind definitely had a violent impact on the early church. As we talked about last week, days after Pentecost, Ananias and Sapphira, you remember they lied to the Holy Spirit. They played the hypocrite. We're told that God judged them quickly. He struck them dead. As with most storms, there were casualties. Hey, the only people who stand up in a windstorm are those who bow down. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. Reminds me of the three preachers who were discussing the revivals that had occurred in each of their local churches. The Baptist pastor, he said, well, praise the Lord, we had new, 10 new people give their lives to Jesus. Not to be outdone, the Assemblies of God pastor, he fired back, well, we had 10 new people filled with the Holy Spirit. Then the Presbyterian pastor, he piped in, well, I've got better news than that. As a result of our revival, we had 10 cantankerous people leave our church. Sometimes that's what happens in a revival. Stubborn and unrepentant folk who dig in their heels and refuse to change, they either get convicted or uprooted. 
A spiritual windstorm is peaceful and disturbing. God brings peace to our hearts, but he brings an unsettledness to our lives. The Spirit takes over and shakes us up and bakes us in the fires of adversity and then makes us into what he wants us to be. A windstorm is the confluence of all kinds of pressure sails and atmospheric stresses. My point is, is if your goal is to maintain the status quo and just keep your life neatly arranged according to your predetermined plans, then a windstorm is an uncomfortable place to be. When stuff starts swirling about, you realize you're no longer in control. But if you want to touch God, and if you want to know his power, then you'll want to be in the wind. Another great spiritual awakening reached the shores of Britain and Ireland around the year 400 AD. Men like Ninian and Patrick and Columba risked their lives to spread the gospel among the local nature worshipers. And the spiritual awakening that ensued was powerful. It had a far-reaching effect. Celtic Christianity snatched the British Isles from the darkness of paganism into the light and truth of the word of God. History tells us that this brave brand of Christianity had a special name for the Holy Spirit. They called him On God Gloss. That's a Gaelic phrase that means the wild goose. To these fearless Christians, not only was the Holy Spirit the gentle dove who rested on Jesus at his baptism, he was also the wild goose who roams the skies and lands wherever he pleases. And I love this idiom for the Holy Spirit. A wild goose can't be trained or tracked. You don't control him or bend his instincts to your will. He has a mind of his own. And the same is true of God's spirit. A wild goose is noisy and raucous and aggressive. The bird's honk is loud and challenging. Up close, a wild goose can be unnerving, even frightening. At Jesus' baptism, the spirit cooed like a dove. But in Acts chapter 2, he swoops down from heaven and he fills the disciples with new wine. Overwhelmed with joy, they were ecstatic in their praise and they were bold in their witness. Later, they were even accused of a morning drunk. In Acts chapter 2, the goose was on the loose. God's spirit stirred up the church. He made his people bold and daring and dangerous. They were a threat to the enemy. The other day, I had a firsthand experience with a wild goose. There's a lake near my house and Wild geese are often on the lake. I was strolling by, minding my own business, mind you, when one of these big birds decided to land on me or try. He might have honked, but I had on my headphones. I didn't hear him, didn't even see him till he was almost on me. This huge goose was in the air behind me, sailed inches from my head. Its trajectory landed at about three feet in front of me. The near flyby scared me to death. You got to know, had I not ducked, that goose would have hit me. It was nearly my swan song. It was definitely foul play. Trust me, it was. I'm just not down 
down with the idea of wild geese roaming my neighborhood. It gives me the goosebumps. From now on, man, I'm looking around. I'm taking a gander. I'm definitely trying to be more nimble, you know, in case I need to jump out of the way. I'm just trying to be a little bit more loosey-goosey, you know what I mean? Well, enough with the punishment this morning. But here's my point. Celtic Christianity had it right. Sometimes the gentle dove acts like a wild goose. Thus, our faith needs to be flexible. We all need to live loosey-goosey. You never know when the Spirit's going to drop in on you to do a new thing. We're to be led by the Spirit. We're to live in the Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit. We're to be filled with the Spirit. In a nutshell, the Christian life is a wild goose chase. Before he died, the world's foremost authority on the subject of revival was a man named J. Edwin Orr. In the early 1970s, he was presenting a series of lectures on revival at the Columbia Bible College when a student asked him, Dr. Orr, besides praying for revival, what can I do to help bring one about? Without hesitation, Orr replied, you can let it begin with you. Revival that's community-wide or even worldwide, it always begins with the mighty rushing wind of God's Spirit that blows through and cleans out God's house first. Again, verse 2, this rushing mighty wind filled the whole house. Here's another revival insight. The word translated filled, it means to cram or to permeate. The wind of the Holy Spirit filled up every corner of the room. Believers became so saturated with the Spirit. His influence colored all that they thought and all that they did. Again, in the Amplified Version, it describes the disciples in this upper room. They were all filled, diffused throughout their souls with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, have you been diffused throughout by the Holy Spirit? When my wife, Kathy, when she cooks a roast, she slow cooks it in the crock pot. Ooh, and all day long, that aroma wafts through the house. It invades every corner of our house. When it's time to eat, everybody knows what's for dinner. All day long, our senses have been primed. And this is what happens in a revival. Spiritual perception gets heightened. Folks, sense God's presence and power. His love and joy is so thick, you can cut it with a knife. In revival, people sometimes get saved before the pastor preaches. They walk in and they sense so strongly that God is there. They immediately want to respond. In an actual windstorm, say a sandstorm on the edge of the desert, there's nowhere to escape the wind or the sand. It seeps into the house through its cracks and crevices. It comes in under the doors or between the window panes. The wind's influence is inescapable. And this is the influence of the Holy Spirit in a spiritual windstorm. Revival produces such a weighty revelation of the reality of God that people are forced to consider Jesus, to deal decisively with their sin. It's as if they're sandblasted by the Holy Spirit. He cuts through layers of veneer to restore an inner purity. In today's world, it's so easy for people just to ignore the things of God, just to shrug their shoulders at Christianity 
and assume a kind of take-it-or-leave-it attitude. The answer for this kind of ambivalence is a spiritual windstorm. And notice in Acts chapter 2 the word whole. The influence of the Spirit filled the whole house where they were sitting. This Greek word whole, whole is it's the word holus, from which we get the word holistic. It means complete or thorough. Holistic medicine is the treatment of not just the body, but the body and the soul, the whole person. And the influence of the Holy Spirit is always holistic. He lives inside us, not just on Sundays, but seven days a week. He alters not just our eternity, but our today. He governs not just our theology, but our sexuality as well. He affects us not only spiritually, but morally. He touches us not only at church, but on the job and at home. He influences not just what we say or think, but how we go about our daily lives. When a spiritual windstorm begins to blow, no corner of our lives remain unaffected by the Holy Spirit. See, throughout the book of Acts, the author is describing a revival, an ongoing windstorm. In Acts chapter 2, the wind blows hard. You even hear it whistle. By the end of the first day, 3,000 souls have been captured in its swirl. In Acts chapter 4, the house physically shakes. In Acts chapter 5, the wind whips violently. It takes out a hypocritical couple. But even the wake-up call doesn't diminish the freshness and power of this mighty wind. It creates a storm of love that permeates all that the disciples do. Acts chapter 4 sums up life in the midst of this windstorm as great grace and great power. And for the remainder of Acts, this wind howls and blows and sends Jesus' disciples to the four corners of the earth as his light and his witness. I want to be caught up in a windstorm. In my research for this message, I discovered that hurricanes originate in a geographical area known as the doldrums. It's a narrow belt of ocean with low pressure, little if no wind, and generally calm seas. See, the doldrums lie near the equator between the trade winds. In the Atlantic Ocean, the doldrums are north of the equator. Thus, there are no hurricanes in the South Atlantic. In the Pacific, the doldrums are on both sides of the equator. Thus, typhoons can hit in either northern or southern hemispheres. Ironically, all windstorms originate in the middle of the doldrums. And let me say the same is true spiritually. Fresh winds of the Holy Spirit, new gusts of supernatural strength, heavenly hurricanes of revival also start in what we would call the doldrums of life. One day a Christian or a group of Christians decides they've wasted too much time in the spiritual doldrums. They get honest before God. They admit that their life is lacking that they're going through the motions of devotion and they're living well below what God intended. Their Christianity is powerless. Their witness is listless. Their service for Jesus has grown tedious. Their spirituality has become monotonous. Their morality seems meaningless. One day this person or persons wakes up floating in the doldrums. 
They admit their discontent and they become desperate enough to pray to God to send the wind. Here's what we should realize. If you or I find ourselves in the doldrums this morning, if we've hit a lull, it only means we are in perfect position to catch a gust of wind. The Holy Spirit starts his work at the point of our neediness. God begins his movements in our doldrums. Again, Vance Havner wrote, the greatest need for America is an old-fashioned, heaven-born, God-sent revival. Throughout the history of the church, when clouds have hung the lowest, when sin has seemed blackest and faith has been weakest, there have always been a faithful few who have besought the Lord to revive his work, and God has always answered such supplication, filling each heart with his love, kindling each soul with fire from above. I love that quote because it highlights the two keys to spiritual revival, our desperation and God's willingness. See, God is willing, but are we desperate? You know, I once thought that as the years went by, pastoral ministry would get easier. You know what? I found it's gotten harder. Without the Holy Spirit, I'm just a sailboat on a stagnant sea. I'm dead in the water. As the years go by, I realize more and more how much I need the wind. You see, pastors tend to be like Kevin Fast. Pastor Kevin is a Lutheran pastor and a strongman competitor from Canada. On September, September the 18th, 2009, Kevin set his ninth Guinness world record in the category of heavy lifting. He strapped himself into a harness connected to a C-17 cargo plane. The aircraft weighs over 400,000 pounds. With his sneakers digging into the runway, he leaned forward. And with all his might, he started to pull. Well, Kevin moved that airplane 8.8 meters, nearly 30 feet, in one minute and 16 seconds, setting the world record for the heaviest aircraft pulled by a human being. It was a tremendous act of near superhuman strength. Yet sadly, Kevin's feet resembled the approach that many pastors in churches are taking toward God's work. Spreading the gospel and planting churches and discipling people can be like that huge airplane. The enormous strength of a few gifted individuals can pull it along for short distances and for brief intervals. But there's a much easier way to move a C-17 cargo plane than to pull it. You can just crank it up and let it fly. And this is what happens in a revival. When we get the wind of the Spirit under our wings, we can really begin to soar. Rather than just inch forward, God's work takes off. If Pastor Chuck told Calvary Chapel pastors once, he told us a thousand times, he would always quote Galatians chapter 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect, trying to be made perfect by the flesh? See, pastors like sailors know that the voyage is better when the wind is at your back. And this is why we need a revival. We need a windstorm. Several weeks ago on May the 6th, our country marked an annual observance that I imagine most of you didn't even recognize. 
It's sponsored by the National Weather Service. It's called Hurricane Preparedness Week. Americans in coastal areas are supposed to spend May 7th through 12th in preparation for hurricane force winds. But I believe if we could get a glimpse of God's calendar, this would also be the days that we live in. For all of us who live close to the heavenly shore, we need to be preparing for a windstorm. There's nothing we can do to deserve such an outpouring of God's spirit. It's by grace. But we can care enough about God and about his people to ask. Do you long for more of God and for more of his influence? That God's presence will be heavier among us? That the strongholds of sin will be broken? That love among God's family will flourish? That God's peace will flow down to us like a river. That a spiritual awakening will occur that'll stop the crime in our community and drop the drug traffic and bring back respect in our schools and cause racial groups to live in harmony and to bless marriages and awaken men to be the leaders in their home. I do. These days, I'm asking God for a spiritual windstorm. And I'm anticipating the first gust in the near future. I hope you'll join me in the asking. Let's cry to Jesus, to the Lord Jesus, for a true heaven-sent Holy Spirit revival. And let's pray it begins in us.